0: Give the people what they want.
1: Give the people what they want.
2: Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup.
1: Good to be with you.
2: It's Give the People What They Want. Show number 131. It's June already. Almost at the middle of this year, 2023. Great to be with you. Give the people what they want. Brought to you by People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Happy to be with you as always. Well, the first half of our show is going to be about really top-level people going around the world and meeting each other. The second half of our show, lots of protests to tell you about. Protests all over the world. You know that we're good at bringing you stories of protests. But protests are not the only kind of politics that take place in the world. Got to also look at people meeting each other, moving and advancing agendas at a higher level. Lula of Brazil, Dia- Miguel Diaz Canal of Cuba, Pope Francis, all of them in Europe. And in the middle of them all, Emmanuel Macron of France. Zoe, we don't often start in Europe, but take it away.
1: You're exactly right. We don't often start in Europe, but right now, uh, global leaders are meeting. This is the second day of their meeting uh, as part of the Summit for New Global Financing Pact. Uh, and so this summit is essentially an attempt to follow up on the agreements that were made in the G20 summit and COP26, an initiative by our, I was going to say friend, but by Emmanuel Macron. Um, And the stated objective is to find ways and means to increase financial solidarity with the South. So it's fitting that one of the leaders of the, of the global South, one of the global, Uh, largest economies in the Global South, Lula da Silva. And of course, Miguel Diaz-Canel, who's president of the G77 plus China, is uh, participating, uh, are participating in this uh, event. And it's, it's interesting because both of them made extremely, extremely sharp interventions in this summit that's with this stated objective of having more solidarity with the Global South Uh, We know that, for example, in COP26, in COP27, major agreements were made by Global North countries who are the largest contributors uh, to pollution, to climate devastation, major agreements on climate financing, climate financing to essentially lessen the blow of the fact that the Global North has destroyed the environment and it's having, of course, most of its impact in the Global South with floods, Um, with rising sea levels, with extreme temperatures, which are affecting the people of the global south. Um, And a lot of this climate financing has not actually advanced. Um, Countries like the United States, EU member states, have essentially refused to to move this forward. And so this summit is called in this kind of framework, in this context. And Lula gave an extraordinary intervention, as he uh, tends to do, And he pointed out the fact that in this entire summit, which is discussing North and South relations, not once was the word inequality used. Um, And he gave a very, very uh, pointed intervention saying that how are we going to discuss the primary challenges and crises facing humanity if we're not talking about inequality? How are we going to solve this issue uh, with the fact that the global north is disproportionately affecting the lives of the people, of, of the masses of humanity, if we're not talking about inequality. And so he says that in order for any advance to be made in terms of saving the planet, in terms of saving humanity, this must be addressed. Uh, Miguel Diaz-Canel, serving as the representative for most of humanity in this in this event, G77 plus China, that is accounting for the majority of the world's population, and he says we can no longer continue with the current international financial, financial institutions that exist. Institutions like the World Bank and the IMF are actually not doing a service to the global south. These are institutions that are not advocating, that are not creating financial solidarity, which is what Emmanuel Macron wanted to promote in this meeting. Um, and that especially countries like Cuba, countries like Zimbabwe, Iran, who are suffering under the weight of global sanctions, how can you even talk about financial solidarity if you're not actually addressing those issues? So, very, very important scene. Uh, as we know, they've had several other bilateral meetings surrounding uh, their trip to participate in the summit. Miguel de Ascanel also was in Rome, also met with uh, the very important leadership in the in Italy. He was in uh, Serbia. So, interesting time. They're both back on the world stage, saying that the global south will not be quiet. These countries that the U.S. has tried to subdue, especially Cuba, will not be quiet. They will make their own relationships and they will build uh, and, and create this the strength of the South to challenge the global North uh, power in these spaces.
2: Amazing things happening. Miguel diaz Canal of Cuba setting the agenda for the G77 Lula right there beside him. Not sure if their moves are going to bear fruit, but my goodness, we're seeing interesting things happen in the world. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, another set of world leaders meeting each other, Prashant Narendra Modi of India, whose foreign minister has been saying, no thank you to the NATO template. Nonetheless, Mr. Modi in Washington, meeting with Joe Biden of the United States, what's happening over there?
0: Yes, quite a curious and much anticipated meeting, in fact, because for almost a year and a half, we have been you know, debating, many people have been debating this question here. We've been hearing arguments as, is India moving away from the U.S. after years of being a close ally? You know, India resisted a lot of U.S. pressure on the question of Ukraine. So there's been a lot of speculation about this. And of course, India buying a lot of Russian oil as well. So there was a lot of anticipation for the summit. And uh, I think the U.S. went really all out to sort of, you know, uh, let's maybe uh, let's politely put it to accommodate Modi in terms of, uh, you know, uh, uh, say having the carpet out for him. It is a state visit, only the third state visit of Biden's term. know, uh, there was the usual uh, White House uh, White House meetings, state dinners, and it, it is really and a lot of rhetoric about you know shared familial ties and uh, this dance of democracies, as they say. <laughs> but I think it's kind of uh, unmistakable that the a key point of this whole debate was really China, and I think especially for the U.S. Uh, there is a strong in the U.S. There is a strong belief that uh, India is integral to its policy of encircling China. We know that just before this meeting, Biden had very inexplicably called Xi Jinping a dictator and said that he had, uh, Xi had no clue of the balloon incident, which is a huge farce anyway from the U.S. side. So uh, you know, the meeting with the Modi Biden meeting took place when this had happened. So. I think for the U.S. it is uh, one an attempt to sort of you know reach out to India, try to sort of bring it uh, further into its ambit. Uh, of course, this joint statement between the countries had the mention of the old good old rules-based international order, as they say. Uh, there were de- there, there was a defense deals were finalized, technology some agreements and technology as well. Although, as always in these cases, the hype is much more than what is really happening. Uh, of course, interestingly, Modi also taking a question uh, or two questions from reporters, which has been which is very unique considering he's never done a press conference. And uh, you know, he was asked about democracy, and he gave a standard answer saying democracy is so amazing in India. And I think uh, you know, I'll we leave it to the viewers to sort of make their own assumptions. But I think the larger picture globally is really this question as to. How uh, this partnership, the partnership between India and the United States, uh, India and the United States, is going to, uh, as into what level the plans of the United States are really going to work out. I don't think it's going to be that simple because while uh, some U.S. observers have said that you know this is an equal threat for both countries, it doesn't really seem uh, that easy for India to sort of just take such a position. So I suspect India is also playing uh, on both sides a bit looking at its own strategic calculus uh, and seeing that to what extent it can go uh, and, you know, sign agreements with the United States and all that. But the real question is how uh, how much will it be drawn into this encirclement? Big question. And I don't think this trip provided a concrete answer for that. There were references, of course, to the Quad, to the I2U2. Last month, Modi had been part of the G7 meeting. But a lot of this also serves the purposes of domestic politicking as well, you know, It's these are all, uh, you know, some of these foreign visits are definitely ways to gain votes as well. And uh, I think with this very delicate global situation that uh, is, uh, has happened with the Ukraine war, the fact that groups such as the SCO and BRICS are also now in the limelight. Uh, I don't think India is 100% putting its, uh, you know, weight behind the U.S. Uh, strategy as of now. But I'm pretty sure that the U.S. will continue to pitch this. I think John Bolton came on a TV channel and made it very explicitly clear as well that this was what, uh, you know, the game plan was. So it's uh, definitely a situation, uh, very much a situation in flux. But uh, until then, I think important to note that people also took to the streets, which kind of gets lost uh, in in the midst of all this high people protesting against the attacks on democracy, the targeting of journalists and activists,
2: student leaders, for instance. Definitely need to remember that as well. Prashant took the name of John Bolton on give the people what they want. I have to do a puja or burn incense or something to exorcise him from my imagination. Um, Well, let's keep going with these elders as it were, because, you know, we had the Pope, we had Lula, we had Miguel diaz Canal, we had Narendra Modi, we had Joe, well, Joe Biden. Let's not say the other J name from the United States. Well, The Elders, an organization created by Nelson Mandela of South Africa in 2007. Mandela said, look, there are lots of state leaders, important political figures who even after their time in office, served their time as presidents of countries, prime ministers, heads of international organizations. There were a lot more to contribute. So he created a group called the Elders, which is now chaired by my dear uh, colleague Mary Robinson used to be president of Ireland. Was a high chief in the United Nations. Her deputy chair is Ban Ki Moon. Some of you may remember the South Korean politician who was um, the head of the United Nations. Well, Ban Ki Moon and Mary Robinson, the two leaders of this group called the Elders, made a trip to Palestine. They spent three days in Palestine, and they released a very, very strong report. And I really want to spend time and acknowledge, firstly, the fact that neither of them previously, particularly Ban Ki-moon, when he was at the head of the United Nations, ever made a strong statement about Israeli policy against the Palestinians. This statement from Ban Ki-moon and Mary Robinson must be looked at in the context of the fact that these are both high officials in the world system. These are people who have had a very important role in international organizations. And what they say in their text, which they released, is there is ever-growing evidence that the situation in Israel and Palestine meets the legal definition of apartheid. Ban Ki-moon, when he left, said in his personal statement, I leave Israel and Palestine with a heavy heart. I have seen and heard compelling evidence of a one-state reality with systematic impunity for violators of international law and human rights. My friends, I have not heard this kind of language from such high officials. In their statement, Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland, Ban Ki-moon, former head of the United Nations, have said that during their three days in Palestine and in Israel, they heard, quote, no detailed rebuttal of the evidence of apartheid. No detailed rebuttal of the evidence of apartheid. And they said that the behavior of the Israeli government, particularly in the occupied West Bank, showed an intent to pursue permanent annexation rather than temporary occupation based on Jewish supremacy. This is their language. They used this phrase that the government of Israel has demonstrated, and here again is their line, an intent to pursue permanent annexation rather than temporary occupation based on Jewish supremacy. If we take the statement made by the elders seriously, then indeed Israel is in serious violation of international human rights law. And indeed, if we take that one sentence where the word used, the phrase used is Jewish supremacy and permanent annexation, not temporary occupation. If we take those words seriously, it is a war crime. Israeli government has committed, says the um, former president of Ireland and a high official of the United Nations and the previous UN Secretary General. The two of them have essentially said that Israel has committed, is committing a war crime. Now, what's very interesting is that this is not, of course, the first time the word apartheid has been used. The word apartheid has been used by the Economic Commission of West Asia about a decade ago. And last year, I just want to read to you the title of Amnesty International's report from last year. Amnesty International's report from last February, February, 2022 says, Israel's apartheid against Palestinians, cruel system of domination and crime against humanity. You see, you've been listening to give the people what they want. First half of our show, we already come to you with a lot of interesting material. You might have read in the press out there about the visit of Lula to um, to the Pope and the meetings in Europe. You might even have read a lot about Modi and uh, Mr. Biden in the United States. But I doubt very much that there's been much coverage of the story of the elders and their report about the war crime committed by the Israeli government against the Palestinian people. We're halfway through our show, friends. We really hope... That you enjoy it, that you listen online live or that you join us later and listen to the podcast. We rely on you to listen to us. We're going to move on now because in Ghana, a Ghana place where Prashant has been on the ground reporting from several times. There is a cycle of protest. Ghana, What is happening in Ghana, Prashant?
0: Right. We have a... A very interesting protest that we have, uh, you know, we've covered. Uh, we have a colleague Tarapriya has written a story on it, and we'll be having some great video footage from our friends from Pan African television soon. Uh, this protest, which is called uh, a Don't Tax My Periods protest, and uh, it's uh, interesting because uh, a very significant issue in Ghana, but rarely reported. Uh, outside, It comes at a time when actually uh, activists and this movement, this protest was specifically led by the women's wing of the socialist movement of Ghana, as well as very progressive organizations, all of whom coming to the streets to protest the fact that basically sanitary paths face a, cra- a, a quite an unbelievable tax actually in the country because of the fact that they are classified as finished goods. Or, uh, for in, in other words, basically luxury taxes. So apparently, this necessity is classified as a finished good and therefore faces fifteen to twenty percent import tax, as well as another twelve percent of uh, value added tax or VAT. So, in a country where you know, which is already reeling from a financial crisis, we have a situation where, uh, according to somebody, according to one of the activists from the socialist movement of Ghana who spoke at a panel discussion, we have a situation where nearly twenty-five percent of Some people's monthly income could go or just on buying sanitary pads because of these uh, taxes. And I think it sort of raises a larger question of uh, menstrual hygiene as well about access, which is often, I think, characterized as merely a women's issue or a private issue. Something to sort of, you know, be uh, resolved somewhere secretly as opposed to a public health issue. And I think this is a focus of what the socialist movement of Ghana has been trying to sort of ensure through these discussions. And this is, uh, you know, uh, you know, forget the stigma and the taboo. This is actually a public health issue, and that was a key part of the protests. And it was also a question of economy as well, uh, in the sense of uh, women being so significant in what is being produced across the continent, across the world, for that matter. But how their needs, how their, how essential products for them are taxed to such an extent. And it's also significant because Ghana is going through, you know, this whole cycle of the International Monetary Fund. There have been all these discussions about that. And once again, every time such discussions come up, what gets, uh, you know, what gets affected first is public health. Resources for public health are what get cut the first, hospitals, education facilities, all of these get affected. And I think the activists in this protest were trying to time and again, raise this question that, you know, you cannot obscure issues like this and you know just talk about macroeconomic issues and they were trying to link i think some of the most immediate needs of day-to-day life with some of these macroeconomic issues so very significant protest in terms of uh, an issue that is often really not talked about too much and for that matter not written about too much we've heard far 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 more about uh the four people who were in the submersible rather than uh, you know, an issue of such significance for what is really a big country, Ghana, is one of the most significant countries in Africa. But the fact that uh, you know the Ghanaian men and women were on the streets protesting for this is something that pretty much finds uh, very little mention in the world media as well. So, a very interesting protest and a very important, important and interesting protest and an important issue. And I think we'll be trying to follow up uh, the Ghanaian, uh, the Speaker of the Parliament. I think has been forced to issue a response. Hopefully, the government uh, takes notice. After, you know, uh, measures like this, governments often uh, get embarrassed sometimes into taking positions. When the stark nature of inequality, when the stark nature of their policies is, you know, is presented before them. So hopefully something happens. But uh, very impressive
2: protests by Ghanaian activists there. Well, protests in Ghana, cross the Atlantic, protests in Argentina... Zoe has written a terrific piece at the People's Dispatch website on the protests in the province of Huí. I don't want to belabor the point, Zoe, but since you wrote the piece and you know what's going on, why are cars burning in Huí?
1: Well, it's been a very interesting week in Argentina. People of the province of Huí are on the streets. They continue to be protesting, continue to be blocking highways, blocking streets, occupying plazas, uh, directly rejecting um, the proposed and the past constitutional reforms by the governor, Gerardo Morales, which today, yesterday, it's rumored that he's going to be the vice presidential candidate for the elections later this year. That's an aside point, and I'm sure we're gonna get to the Argentine elections in the coming shows. However, Gerardo Morales, um, he is a figure in Argentine politics who has represented a very, very kind of hardline uh, right-wing position in many different uh, moments. And in Huhui,' it's, it's one of these provinces where you have many issues uh, on the table. You have a, a large uh, population of indigenous people. You have many, many key natural resources such as lithium, which, as we know, is uh, the most, sought after natural resource today, uh, today's globally, um, you have a lot of organizations, a lot of people organized into trade unions, and then you have this extremely regressive, um, governor who has time and time again, gone after social movements. We know the case of Milagro Sala. She has been, uh, under the, the, guise of uh, his repression for the past several years. She's been suffering under house arrest and consistently called out the leadership of Gerardo Morales and his role in her persecution and the people who had been on the streets uh, because Gerardo Morales announced a week prior that uh, he was uh, considering implementing several constitutional reforms. Uh, I think there are about 60 modifications to different articles of the provincial constitution but two really stuck out for movements um specifically indigenous movements and trade unions and social movements in the province and really nationally um these have to do with on one hand uh land and so this uh modification to the law of private property uh which essentially has given because uh the key point is is that these constitutional reforms were passed uh this uh, reform to private property law gives more power to property title holders um, and it says that essentially they have the power uh, to evict those who don't have property titles and to in some way modify their private property holding and their ability to access it, to enjoy it and to uh, cultivate it. So this is seen by indigenous movements as a direct attack on their, uh, their land rights Um, As we know, as as what happened in much of the Americas, indigenous people were kicked off their land. And many times they were not given, they did not have formal property titles. And so many of these, uh, in many cases, uh, it's possible that a private landowner could actually have rights to property that's that's ancestrally part of this indigenous community where they have inhabited for decades, for centuries. um, And now with this reform, Uh, these private landowners who just bought this property with no uh, violating indigenous communities right to it. Now they'll have the ability to kick them off. This has created a lot of um, anger from these communities that are in the midst of many different conflicts over resource extraction in the province. And then the other um, major reform that's been met with a lot of uh, rejection is Uh, the reform that essentially says that highway blockades and road blockades are uh, prohibited and that um, whoever participates in one could face um, high uh, legal consequences. This, of course, in Argentina, the country of road blockades, the piqueteros, I mean, to ban this is essentially saying you can't protest. This is saying you cannot go to the streets, you cannot raise your demands, you will face consequences and this again, has been met by the human rights community in Argentina, which is an extremely active and engaged, many, many organizations have come out and said, this is in complete violation of people's constitutional rights. This is in violation of the national constitution. And so that's why we've seen, I think there are over 40 points of road blockades across the province, largely organized by these indigenous rural and peasant communities in the cities. There have been continuing strikes by trade unions, by social movements, in the capital of Buenos Aires, people have been protesting in solidarity, but we've seen brutal repression. A 17-year-old lost his eye. There was uh, outside of the provincial legislature. on Tuesday, someone was hit in the head with, an, uh, with a tear gas canister and is in critical condition in the hospital. Once again, these patterns of repression are repeating. We saw this in Peru. We saw this in Colombia. Across the continent, these right-wing forces continue to respond to people's demands with violence and with repression.
2: Violence and repression. Yes, indeed. Well, but let's turn to the Sahel, where you all know that I frequently report from there, have traveled through there, have an understanding of some of the countries and yet complicated mess of politics. Um, This week, the government in Mali decided that it would hold a referendum. Now, bear attention to the fact That there have been two coups in Mali, one in 2020, one in 2021, essentially to establish the sovereignty of the people of Mali against both the kind of intervention made by jihadi groups coming from Libya and from Algeria, but also the Tuareg insurgency in the north, um, as well as to establish sovereignty against the intervention of the French. This is exactly what the government of Assimi Goite did with the coup of 2021. Now, the government had promised that they would hold a referendum uh, so that there could be a discussion how the elections would take place in March 2024. Rebel groups in the north uh, decided not only to boycott the group, but to launch attacks against the AIGE, or Mali's Independent Election Management Authority. And the situation of this Referendum has been really chaotic. You know, people are trying to use the fact that the government simply is unable to release results from this referendum as in a way to say that the government is just going to try to hold power undemocratically. Others are saying this is merely a sign of the continuing instability due to the violence in the north. Um, Interestingly, United Nations just released a report called Firearms Trafficking in the Sahel. Very, very instructive, my friends, because when you read this report from the United Nations, you learn how many people are making money selling arms, small arms, medium arms and heavy arms into the Sahel region. Um, You know, wars don't take place simply because of animosity. Wars take place also because people are running guns into this region. Um, I've interviewed many, many people who are arms dealers. And it's very clear, they will tell you that the biggest problem in parts of Africa are not animosities, ancient animosities or recent animosities. The biggest problem is the illegal arms trade. Um, This arms trade takes conflicts and makes them into wars. Where these conflicts might have a political solution, the barrel of the gun becomes the first thing that one sees. And indeed, the insurgencies in the north intensified when there was a discussion about having an election um, in 2024, in March. Um, This is a serious issue for the people of Mali, because I think there is, in some regard, an appetite for some kind of democratic government. Um, I say some kind, because in fact, whatever polls there are, and it's very difficult to conduct polls in a country like Mali, where almost half the country is held by various forms of insurgency, but the half of the country, but the government has sort of established its rule. Um, this government, or Mr. Goethe, is quite popular. Um, and so this government, despite the fact that it, it came to power through the second coup, a coup that followed a coup, a coup that said that the previous government was not able to meet um, the demands of the people. This government, a coup government, let's be quite clear, let's not sugarcoat it, is nonetheless fairly popular. People would like to see some sort of referendum, some sort of election. In fact, it's likely that Mr. Goite will run in some kind of election or his candidate will run. Meanwhile, um, not soon now, on the 30th of June, United States Security Council is going to meet to see whether they should extend um, the mandate for a UN security, uh, UN mission, peacekeeping mission in Mali. That mission was actually thrown out by Mali's foreign minister, Abdoulaye Diop, who went to the Security Council and called for the termination of that mandate. Tough times in Mali. But I must say, it's not just about Mali. It's about the Sahel, where people are trying to establish their sovereignty. And one part of that sovereignty is against the illegal arms trade, which is not really discussed that much. What a show. You've been listening to Give the People What They Want, brought to you by People's Dispatch, And Globetrotter, so happy to be with you. We'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.